morning, everybody. Happy Football's Good Again Day. And welcome to the News Agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by the Mirror's political correspondent, Aletha Adu. Good morning, Aletha. Morning, Susie. Yeah, we're running a bit late because Aletha's been stuck in the strikes, which we are going to get into talking about straight away. But this is the People's Pay-Per-View, so get into the comments, ask us your questions, we'll do our best to answer them for you. Those of you listening later on podcast are just going to have to cheer on the girls instead. So what have we got today? Well, the Mirror has splashed on an interview with RMT boss Mick Lynch, the uh, best prime minister we're never going to have. Today, his members at Network Rail and 14 train operators are out on strike. And yesterday, Tory leadership hopefuls both promised, or well, Liz Truss rather, promised that if she became PM, she'd make it harder for people to go on strike with new laws to set minimum service levels, double the amount of notice required, increase the percentage of support needed and take away their tax-free subsidies from um, the unions, which enable people to, to take that strike action. Rishi Sunak didn't say no to any of that. In fact, he said he'd do whatever it takes to, to stop the strikes. Um, now, unsurprisingly, perhaps, faced with this promise to make legal strikes more difficult, Mick Lynch is now saying there might need to be illegal ones instead. And he's calling for a countrywide fight back against what he calls a Tory war on workers. Now, take us through this, Aletha. What's his, what's his argument? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll just read you some quotes that we've got in our splash. And he's saying, essentially, well, accusing the Tories of acting like extremists, as Margaret Thatcher did, really restricting people's power to strike. He said, we're at a real crossroads with these anti-union proposals coming on the back of the misery caused by the cost of living crises. And he said, it's time for workers across the economy, whether you're a union member or not, to take a stand. So he's obviously calling others who are feeling, you know, possibly a bit nervous about joining strike action to essentially act for themselves and, you know, speak up and fight as, you know, the Tories are essentially fighting amongst themselves. I mean, we must note, Susie, that the last time the strikes were happening or the last time you know, a, a large measure of strikes were going on, uh, Boris Johnson was still prime minister and it was seen that he might have a real chance of clinging on to power, at least clinging on for the rest of this year. And over the last few weeks, we've seen a complete descent to power in the Tory government, as if that wasn't obvious beforehand. And they're now really struggling to show unity amongst themselves. So the public are now looking at this collapsing government. You've got the likes of Grant Shapps really trying to, you know, get Keir Starmer to uh, fire the likes of Sam Terry, the shadow transport minister who is now on the picket line. But they just don't have as much authority as they once did. So it's not just a war. They're not just creating a war amongst the people, you know, workers that are striking. They're also just showing that they are losing their grip on crises like this because ultimately Susie it's not it's not a, a difficult thing if the government wants to really you know raise uh, better conditions for workers they simply can at the click of a button and you know people stop striking but they're refusing to do so and they're piling pressure on calling people union barons like Mick Lynch which is you know, not really the case is it? No barons remember people who inherited land and generally abused the serfs and stuff like that. And actually also uh, held evil King John to account, got the Magna Carta signed and established some of the first legislation for human rights. So barons um, have their upsides, shall we say. Um, now, uh, so there's a brilliant, you mentioned Grant Shapps, and there is a brilliant clip from his broadcast round this morning, which is doing the rounds on Twitter. We can't 
put it on the, the screen for you for technical reasons. But fundamentally, Grant Shapp says, uh, in the three years that I've been transport secretary, there hasn't been a day without either a live dispute or a strike. <laughs> and, and he says, that's no way to run an industry. Um, now, I don't know if anybody's ever told Grant Shapps what his job is, but uh, <laughs> the RMT has been trolling him on Twitter and saying, mate, all you've got to do is pick up the phone. We're here. We're waiting to speak to you. Uh, and they don't seem to be willing to have any kind of meaningful conversations about this. In fact, Grant Shapps, correct me if I'm wrong, Aletha, Grant Shapps isn't talking to Mick Lynch at all, is he? It's the... It's the rail operators talking to Mick Lynch, but the operators have been told what to say by Grant Shapps. Is that right? That's you're bang on, Susie. <laughs> and, you know, he's refused to even engage, you know, indirectly with these unions, with the likes of Mick Lynch, uh, constantly since March. So not only does he not really have to get involved directly with them, but he hasn't really been doing his job for the last few months. Um so it's just completely unacceptable and it's easy for them to sort of pass on the buck. But the reality is, I mean, my colleague Graham Hiscott, our colleague Susie, uh, who's head of business at the Mirror, he got an exclusive story that is in our paper uh, from Manuel Cortez, who is the head of the Transport Salaried Staff Association, who is warning that these strikes could run into next year. So they're not going away anytime soon. And as you know, our other colleague notes, Jason Beatty, also in the newspaper, he's got a great analysis piece highlighting the fact that strikes do work. And, you know, believe it or not, the Tories might have to cave in eventually. I mean, we've already seen the former Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, doing new turns on his big proposals to like not cut taxes now. He's, you know, essentially doing just that. Being, that. Which is yeah. Abe has been telling him to do. <laughs> Exactly. His his great bid, this is amazing, isn't it? His great bid to be the next Conservative Prime Minister is to do what Labour's told him to do. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And this has happened with windfall taxes as well a few weeks ago. It's just the same cycle repeating itself. And it's just, you know, it's pretty disappointing um, that the Tories just can't learn from their mistakes and just do the right thing as soon as a problem arises. You know, this is all just problems. They're saying that they're on the public side, if they really are, there's a really simple method to avoid all of this disruption and they're refusing to just do the easy and right thing. Yeah, and it's worth bearing in mind that when you pay people more money, you get to tax them more. They Mm. put more into their pensions, which means more investment in the city. It means that they spend more in the economy, which means growth. And that's one of the things these two here, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are saying is their big thing is about growth. And that means people earning more money. That's the only way you get growth. Anyway, um, so this is what basically they're talking. Um, Mick says this is the biggest move against the union since they're legalised in 1871. Liz Truss's plans here, which she says are going to be uh, what she will do in the first 30 days in office. Um, and the Tories are saying that unions, you know, they hold people to ransom but Mick is saying it's the fat cats they're holding the country to ransom because they're by not paying workers properly it's more of a ransom he says that you can't feed your children or pay your bills Claire says here there's a reason for strikes maybe do the right thing in the first place and there wouldn't be any need for any of them um and you know in effect what Mick's saying in this interview is that what the Tories are doing he says it's it's private and public sector workers who can't afford to exist he says And in effect, what the Conservative 
uh, plans are is they're they're trying to almost extinguish some parts of society. If you can't afford to eat now, and they're going to keep your wages low, where do you go in the future? And as Claire's got there, that there seems to be very widespread public support for this. In previous strikes that I can recall, people were quite anti, but this time round because everybody's being affected by the cost of living and everybody's being affected by a complete lack of decent pay rises, um, then everyone seems to be fairly... Well, we've had the people on this show as well, our our viewers. They're they're pretty pro, aren't they? Where Mm. can the Tories hope to go with it when there's a lot of public support? Honestly, I have no idea what is what their strategy just sort of thinking at this moment in time apart from preparing to do another u-turn <laughs> which is just <laughs> i don't know how far it's they're trying to take a railway though i mean what helps them is this tory leadership race obviously it's taking a little bit of you know direct pressure from them but i mean ultimately we're seeing the candidates having to debate these issues and prove to the public that, you know, what their plans, uh, what they propose would be the right thing and could, you know, solve this issue. Clearly, that's not the case, seeing from what Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have both proposed. Um, but it's just interesting that Grant Shapps, again, as I said earlier, is piling pressure on Keir Starmer to fire his shadow cabinet. I mean, Keir Starmer, since the last round of strikes, has been, you know, largely silent. I mean, yesterday he came on morning round saying that you know he hopes his shadow shadow front benches are not on the picket lines but it's quite interesting Susie I spoke to a senior Labour um, uh, strategist who looks after their policy plans just two weeks ago before I went on my lovely holiday and she told me that it seems like um, the communication between uh, shadow front benches and you know her team had been sort of lost somewhere lost in translation she told me that you know they weren't essentially trying to directly stop front benches from going on picket lines and that they weren't trying to threaten them directly but it was just that they didn't want the front benches to be mixed up within the direct chaos and become the story instead mm. of you know the workers being the story and them sort of like but is, know, it, is it the case then that because i mean what keir starmer has said publicly about it is that he says you need to be in opposition like you are in government which and if you were in government you wouldn't be out on the picket lines he said mm. you to resolve that dispute mm. so that's why he's not saying we mustn't be seen to support the strikes he's saying we must have come up with solutions for the strikes we must act like grown-ups so and so forth. But i think the issue came from you know that a few weeks ago when the texts were sent round to front bench and it was like you know you will be you know you will face some sort of penalty if you are seen and everyone was just kind of like well this isn't school <laughs> and you had yeah. some of them like oh i was i didn't even get the message so yeah i'm gonna like defy his orders and it was just like oh gosh here we go another sort of interview internal Labour Party row. Um, so is it the case then that I suppose the, the Labour front benches or the Labour members feel they've been sort of threatened somewhat by the leadership not to go out and strike? Or is it that some of the right-wing press are reporting the message saying, please don't go out and strike, and they're saying Keir has threatened his front benches because it suits their narrative? Mm, I believe it's the former. I think many front benches don't like being shadow front benches, don't like being told what to do. <laughs> and they're just feeling quite rebellious. Um, yeah. I think it was largely left wing uh, papers and organisations that got the tip off in the first place that, oh, this is the message some of them have received. And 
many of them are not very happy about it, but they followed Islam's orders anyway. Um, obviously, the government pounced on this and you've got Grant Schatz now still saying, yeah, you know, Keir Starmer is not great. It's not a great leader. He needs to get control of his own ship. <laughs> He's yeah, not ready most, for government. Most people are going to see that and go, it's not Keir Starmer's job. <laughs> Exactly. I can yeah. see Keir's worried that, you know, someone who's pictured on a on a picket line, even if they're backbench at the moment, might in a year or two be a transport secretary mm. uh, and might be a chancellor or something. Right. And that's not a good look for the Daily Mail mm. to pull this out of the archives for the rest of time, saying, look, look what they did. They stood yeah. next to this one. And it's, you know, I can understand why he's doing it, but perhaps the communication could have been. A little clearer, yeah. <laughs> that could work, couldn't it? Now get into the comments, everybody. Tell us what you think. What do you think the Conservative leadership hopefuls should be saying about this? Because they should be being asked about the strikes. And they should be being asked what their solutions are for them. What would you like them to be? Do you want them to pay the strikers more? Do you want them to pay the strikers what they are? Do you want them to break these strikes somehow? What do you want and why is it important? What do you think they should do? Because the fundamental issue, isn't it, Aletha, is that that Liz and Rishi are talking at the moment to the Tory membership, this 160,000-odd bunch of people who are mostly male, mostly over 60, mostly in the south of England. Yeah. And you don't say to those people, someone's on strike, let's pay them more money and give them what they want. <laughs> you, you say to those people, smash Scargill, <laughs> and then, then they're happy. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to go, Thatcher, Thatcher, we smash the unions, and then they will vote for you, which is what they're doing at the moment. But... I'm a bit thinking about this is that once Rishi and, and or Liz or both of them or whatever go into office mm. to get whatever job they've got in the next government, um, how can they marry what they've said to the membership to get the job up with the realities of what their job is going to actually enable them to do? Because they're still going to have a divided party. They've still got very short time for the next general election. They've been talking to their membership. They've got to start talking to the general population quite soon. Mm. And if those people support the strikes, you can't bring in legislation to stop it. And if you start having wildcat strikes, which is what Mick Lynch is threatening, it's all they're going to get to the point where their own membership, perhaps, are going, hang on, five minutes ago, you were telling us you would smash this. Now you're yeah. paying and that doesn't equate so why should I vote Tory again in the future they're going to lose their own there must be a way through it for them I just can't right I... yeah no it's a really good point um I think that's why during the early days of this Tory leadership contest we heard lots of candidates like Penny Morden, Tom Tugendhat saying oh I'm the candidate that the Labour Party would worry about the most because obviously now, they realise that after, you know, September the 5th, whoever's next in number 10 will have to be appealing to Labour voters, Lib Dem voters, as well as the larger uh, membership of the Conservative Party. But I think what is very worrying <laughs> about what we've seen so far from this contest and from what apparently Tory members want is that we're seeing reports from the Telegraph of people, you know, signing petitions that have been, you know, created by the likes of Lord Craddus, the Tory peer, he was given his peerage by Boris Johnson, saying that they want this outgoing Prime Minister to be on the ballot paper, <laughs> to be a choice between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. I think this is just where 
some of these members' minds are and their heads are. So it just it's worrying that they're really not thinking about crises that are going to be coming from January 2023. You know, we've got people worried about their benefits that are not being raised enough as inflation is going to continue to skyrocket into some real double digit figures. And yet they're worried about Boris Johnson. <laughs> Leaving number 10, Susie, I think um, it's amazing and it's confusing and it's <laughs> a real interesting well, kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's a lot like um, the Labour Party under Corbyn. There's a split between the membership and the MPs. So the MPs yeah. don't want them as leader and the membership do, um, which is why they're talking about this. And as Mike says here, with seemingly thousands seemingly because we're not quite sure anybody can put the yeah. details into yeah. the petition with any old membership number and apparently mm. check it first so <clears throat> at the moment i think it's about seven or eight thousand but it may get thinned out when they actually start verifying these signatures um mm. with seemingly thousands of regional tory members demanding that johnson stays as prime minister how long will his replacement last before he tries to bring them down uh, there's talk about him going on the back benches he <laughs> He does. He has said before he likes throwing rocks over the garden wall and listening mm. to the sound of tinkling glass on the other side. Um, and he does seem to think that, like Churchill, he's going to come back at some point. Yeah. Um, is there any route, I suppose, Letha, is the question, is there any route for, with your Westminster hat on for him <laughs> to stay as prime minister? I've been really trying to like dig through some of these 1922 committee rules and really... Because once, essentially, Susie, we've seen what Boris Johnson is like since 2019 and even, you know, when he was London mayor. If there is the tiniest of loopholes, he will force himself through that and he will essentially change the rules to suit him. We've seen that time and time again. It's not just with big scandals like Partygate and deciding to, you know, uh, give the likes of Chris Pincher promotions despite knowing their, you know, horrid histories. Um, but again, as you say, like, he said before he wouldn't mind throwing these rocks from behind, but that was before he became world king. I don't think his ego will allow him to take such a back step. Um, so we've been seeing a number of questions being thrown at candidates, you know, asking them, would you take Boris back into your cabinet? Because it's a very viable question. Um, I'm sure if Liz Truss becomes prime minister, I mean, she's really struggled to criticise him publicly in any of these debates. Um, he probably will have a seat at the table. And if that's not an option. We're hearing of him being talked up to become the next uh, NATO uh, sec, which is also <laughs> quite bewildering, given that you know, we've got the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, who's done such a fantastic job on Ukraine. He was sort of being lined up for that job, and suddenly Boris is like, actually, guys, I kind of need you to back me on this, despite yeah. having no proof of you know anything viable that he's done for this well, country. Well, NATO Secretary General might be a step nearer being actual world king, so maybe <laughs> Was thinking of that uh there are but he has been a bit reluctant to go to cobra meetings so maybe yeah. maybe not the best move um maybe. although i suppose if you were prime minister and he was if you could get him in your cabinet he might be bound by cabinet responsibility a collective responsibility and therefore be less likely to be critical but mm. you couldn't put him in charge of anything that might involve a sex pest because that is why he resigned mm. um maybe make him a a appear at movement to the house of lords but would no. that get past the lords appointment committee no, no. <laughs> very difficult we've got to move him somewhere he's not going to cause you any trouble and nato might be 
might be a good suggestion. Anyway, get into uh, the question. Get into the comments. Ask us your questions. Let us know what you think. Um, the Tories keep calling the unions militant, and that's why we're having these strikes. But the unions have arguably always been militant, and they're not always on strike. So that doesn't make sense. A bit like blaming the French for the chaos at Dover when the same chaos is at the right. end. There are yeah. no French border stuff. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyway. Get into the comments and ask us your questions. We do have to move on because there was almost, this was almost the good news, but it's not because it's too good. Now, yesterday, there was an England football match where we won convincingly. It didn't go to penalties and there was no hooliganism in Trafalgar Square. In fact, opponents, uh, fans of our opponents, Sweden, were welcomed with open arms and no one got too drunk and smashed right. a police over the head with a flapper. Does this mean football's reinvented itself? Does it, heck? It means that the women were playing, of course, and playing very well, Aletha. Um, now, you watched the highlights because you're busy doing some work at the same time. Yes. It, all, it all went pretty well, didn't it? Yes, there was just this amazing backwards nutmeg that I caught a shot of, and it was just incredible. <laughs> I can't go into the specifics, but I do remember there was a striker that just nutmeg. Yeah, backwards nutmeg. It was just with the back of her heel, just oh, right, okay. whipped it into the back of the net. Um, classy finish there. Um, and yes, as you say, um, you know, it's remarkable that it ended on a really high note. We're not seeing any horrible reports of fights breaking out and people being rushed to hospital and the police being called to different scenes because you know people weren't handing their drink it just really shows that yes when the girls are running the show um you know all is in order you know everyone's yeah. back <laughs> getting on with their day one of the fans that's quoted in the paper there is saying and there's lots of male fans for this it's got to be said there's mm. plenty of Male football fans who go to the male football matches who were watching the female matches yesterday and who probably behaved differently as a result. Perhaps they were there with their wives and daughters instead. Who knows? Mm. But um, they, they, there was a male fan quote in the paper is saying, it's great watching the game because the lionesses don't foul as much as the men. Mm. And they don't, you know, and it's not about ego and masculinity and who's won. and It's yeah. literally about who can win. It's different, exactly. entirely different, far more collective responsibility going on pamela says if you want a job done properly get a woman to do it the lionesses are smashing it very quickly Elise, before we move on what do you think the chances are of a the lionesses winning the euros and b making the boys all behave a bit better when it's their turn a i think we've got every chance of winning them um i have full faith in their skills, really rooting for them as everyone is. We saw a picture of Keir Starmer and his wife like tweeting from the ground, like, yeah, it's 4 0. Everyone's just really chuffed and we're so proud. Um, so sending them all of our best wishes. Um, there he on is. The yeah, the yeah. Yeah. And he's not got the football shirt on over his, his shirt. Why? He's, he's not, not wearing the tie. Yeah. <laughs> I think not wearing the tie to the football makes him eminently more electable than the person who did wear a tie to the football. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but on your second point um sadly i don't think uh, their amazing behavior will have a knock-on effect on the men's football matches we've just seen time and time again just how rowdy things can get uh, people assaulting their fellow football fans who are supporting the same team just because they look different um i think there's We've got a lot more to do in terms of really trying to open people's eyes to seeing the damage they're doing when, A, they're just not handling their drink very well, and, B, when people are just 
allowed free reign to just cause a ruckus afterwards. I don't know what more we can do, but I think uh, we have to be talking to the men in our lives. Um, it's really trying to educate them from the ground up, really. Um, yeah. But I also must say that a lot of sports commentators, well, football commentators last night were highlighting and also urging schools to really uh, try and up football games and practices for young girls that have the talent to make it into pro football teams but just don't have the support you know around them uh heard from a number of you know women that were older than me saying they didn't ever have the chance to even consider certain sports when they were younger um you know they're around like their 60s and they're hoping that girls now in their early teens you know pushing 10 years mm -hmm. old will have the chance to do what they feel like. I mean, we're seeing the it's lionesses play. Perhaps there's, I mean, the, one of the big differences to the lions and lionesses, of course, is that the lions have a lot of black players and the lionesses just don't have so much diversity in the team at the mm. moment. Is that one of the reasons, the fact they don't have the encouragement perhaps to, to join in the same way that perhaps young black men do? I think really, if we're going to try and focus on, you know, diversity between races, we really just must make it easier for women as a whole to just go into this career path if they choose to do so and if they've got the talent to do so and mm -hmm. if they just love playing the game it's mm -hmm. even hard enough just trying to find you know social football clubs to play like every once in a while just to get the spaces as a woman to do so so before we can even talk about diversity within you know women football teams we really just must make sure that you know in 2022 going into 2023 we're nailing this and young girls can choose to do whatever they want to do it's oh, being nice yeah. <laughs> and have no one tell them that they can't do something because they're a girl Basically. um I, I i heard a little while ago about some someone who was just playing in a local uh <clears throat> local team a women's team and they've been playing on this same pitch for years uh and they just got told to leave for no good reason they had nothing had gone wrong they just no we don't want you to do this anymore and they replaced them with a the boys team wow uh yes. it's like that's in your local pitch <clears throat> some local town or suburb you know and it's just because the boys to game is, is more important but <clears throat> we'll have to see won't we um but yeah. in terms of <clears throat> we do have some some good news coming up excuse me frog in my throat <laughs> um so get into the comments ask us your questions we'll try and wrap at the end um but what do you feel about the train strikes what do you think the tory leadership contenders should be doing to end this and bring it to a close um where are you on the lionesses do you think that the men's game and the women's game are comparable or do you think that the women are doing it better get into the comments let us know but first off there is some good news in the world and here it is Now, regular viewers of this show will know that I am a big fan of canines, uh, foxes and dogs and wolves, as opposed to cats. Um, and today this has been borne out by yet another piece of brilliant scientific discovery, which uh, comes from the University of the Bleeding Obvious, if you ask me. And it establishes that cats are just horrible to people. Susie, no, come on. Susie's going to pull out. <laughs> so a team from Toyama University in Japan has worked out that owning a dog reduces depression for pregnant women and new mums, while owning a cat actually makes it worse. They say that dogs are better companions, they have more empathy, they can boost their owner's self-esteem. And the researchers say that the fact that cats can't do that is because they haven't lived with humans for as long. Other people might say it's because they're cats. Um, but Aletha, is it perhaps a good idea, I don't know, to make sure that every football fan has a dog? <laughs> 
they behave a little bit better. Yeah, I'd say actually, if we're going to get dogs involved, we should try and get more German <laughs> shepherds on the street. Get German shepherds on the streets with police. They're amazing, gorgeous <laughs> dogs, but they're also very disciplined. They can create, you know, law and order. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe just actually having a dog as a friend is what we're talking about here as opposed to. No, I know, oh, I know. I would say, though, is loving cats and loving dogs and having owned a cat who is not with us anymore. Um, but I think it really just depends on the cat's nature. I think cats have a really bad rep of, you know, being really independent and not caring about their owners and just sort of coming in when the food bowl has been filled and then just dashing out for like days on end. Um, but they really you, are affectionate. You face off with claws, yeah. <laughs> you in your sleep. That's just them being close to you. And I, once I remember <laughs> just waking up in the middle of the night, it was quite scary. But then obviously I did the research. Basically, my cat was like on my chest, just looking straight into my eyes. And I was just like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I've got a theory about this, Alita, though, right? It's only, a, it's only a hypothesis, I suppose, rather than theory. But it is that the difference between cat people and dog people is that dog people are happy and loving and outgoing and prepared to share affection with others, which is why yeah. they're like dogs. Whereas cat people just want to be abused. <laughs> and... So I'm both then. I love cats and dogs. You woke up with an animal filled with teeth and claws. That is him trying to protect me. His claws weren't out. Okay, let's just clear the record. Apparently planning your murder and you went, oh, this is all my fault. (laughs) He was protecting me. That's his way of saying I'm there. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm sure there are many abused people who tell their psychiatrists the same (laughs) thing, Alita. Um, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? Whether perhaps, you know, Tommy Robinson gets a nice dog and calms down. Uh, that would be... You know, the next time I'm on Susie, I'm going to do my research. I'm going to find some more studies proving just how amazing cats are. And Yeah, yeah. You go and find the science that says cats have empathy and make people happy. You come back here and we'll we'll have a whole half hour on it because I'll, I'll need that long to laugh. Be prepared, yeah. Be prepared. <laughs> Okay, thank you, everybody. Um, thanks, Lee, for taking part and tolerating my cat abuse. Um, thank you, everyone, for your questions. Uh, well done, the lionesses. And if you want to uh, listen and podcast, if you could leave us a review, it helps people find us. We'll see you all again uh, next Monday for another edition of the News Agenda. Bye-bye, everybody.